So this is the this is the eleventh uh, time in thirteen days that I've been wired up and uh, ready to go again. And it's been a great joy and a blessing. I'm very grateful to His Grace Bishop Siloan for inviting me because I have been immensely enriched by my time with you, with your clergy, with the faithful, and I'm grateful to God for <clears throat> many things that I've learned and and. I hope to God that whatever I've offered, it's been of God and not of myself, that it is God's um, uh, holy ones that have been speaking, because I have nothing but the church offers everything for us. Tonight I'm going to start out with some personal uh, stories, because <clears throat> it, this uh, particular topic uh, concerns what the work I'm doing right now in, in Arizona. I'm the headmaster now, uh, since this last September, of a uh, new Orthodox school, K-12, the Three Hierarchs Academy, just down the street from the Monastery of St. Anthony's in Florence, Arizona. And I, I cannot stress enough, uh, both from my experience, but also from everything I've seen over the last 18 years in Greece, that the Orthodox school especially for the youngest children, is one of the most important bastions and, and uh, fortresses of the church going forward. It's going to be, uh, for us, an essential element of the life of the church if we're going to survive the onslaught of secularism. I like to say in America, I don't know if you're familiar here in Australia, you've heard of the Alamo and the battle uh, back in the 19th century, and there's an expression there that this is, the Alamo was the last stand. And for us, the schools are our Alamo. It's our last stand against the onslaught of secularism. We are losing generations of Orthodox Christians because the educational systems in the Western world are not only not helping our children, they're designed to take our children away from us. And you have to understand this, you have to understand the history of compulsory state education for the last 200 years. I gave a lecture, it's online, if anyone wants to go more deeper into this. Compulsory state education began in the late, in the end of the, of the uh, 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, in uh, Germany, contemporary Germany, and its aim was not for the formation in Christ or even the formation per se of the children, but the socialization and in particular the service of the next generation to the formation of a modern state. And the aim of education in the first, in the beginning was, had nothing to do with the classical vision of Socrates or of the trivium, the, the, the grammar stage or the logic stage or the, the rhetoric stage, which is the classical educational approach. It had everything to do with <clears throat> creating a modern mechanized state and putting people at work for the sake of that state. And so the education was intentionally limited for the masses. 
and only for the elite did they have a higher education. Over time, over the, throughout the 19th century, in the early 20th century, especially with the totalitarian regimes of Mussolini, Hitler, and Lenin, you see an explosion of state education precisely for the indoctrination of the people into the socialist and communist and fascist systems. They saw it as an opportunity, again, to form and shape the masses. It was not about formation in Christ, anything but, it was the opposite. Uh, and the growth of, of compulsory state education is directly associated with the growth of these, these anti-Christian regimes. And so, not only did that happen politically for political reasons, but it also, we have a shift in, com in com contemporary education, the, the vision of what it's meant to do. Classically, traditionally, among Christian peoples, we have the ideal, we have the archetype, who is Christ. We have the ideal, which is to take someone and initiate them into virtue, grow them in terms of the virtue, present to them, as St. John Chrysostom says, examples of virtue. That's the main aim of education. It's not knowledge in terms of Gnosis in terms of just acquiring academic or technical knowledge. That's not the aim of education. It's the formation in the virtues, in other words, to become gods by grace ultimately in the church. Uh, and we have now at the end of the 19th century, especially in America, we have an inversion, not just a, a departure, but an inversion. Because there is no common denominator in multicultural and pluralistic societies, because especially in the 19th century in America, they wanted to enculturate and assimilate masses of immigrants. They wanted an educational system which would serve that purpose. And we, we're very naive if we think by sending our children to the state education, we're not undermining their life in Christ. That's very clear today, I think, to everyone with all of these, the latest in a long line of departures from the Christian anthropology and the Christian vision of of formation, of morphosy. It's, a, it's very obvious, I think, to everyone where this is going. But it's been going on not for 10 or 20 or 30, but hundreds of years. It's a, it's a, it's a vision of man directly as a fruit of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment, of course, was the great leap and departure away from classical, the classical vision, the Renaissance even uh, earlier. So we have a... Uh, the, the fruits of the Enlightenment would have been the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution or the American Revolution. And in that context, education was also formed and shaped. John Dewey, who's a famous educator in the United States, was a part of this, very influential in what they understood to be the center of education. And of course, the center of education today is the child, and, and egotistically so. Not that the child is going to be formed in Christ, or formed in virtue, or formed in any kind of even ancient Greek or Latin uh, ideal, but that we're going to allow the discovery of the child. We're going to leave him to his, to his devices. It's, it's, in, it's, it's the inversion of the Christian vision. So I could, we could go on for a long time. You can see the, the lectures I've done online. Uh, there's two lectures that I gave a year ago this, uh, in April in California talking about compulsory education and where it's leading and what it's all about and where it comes from. But also, there's a lecture on post-patristic theology and the vision 
the, which is very much a part of the contemporary theological scene, which is a diversion and a, a departure from patristic theology, and the classical or tradi traditional understanding of orthodox education. Um, so I don't want to go further in that direction, but one has to understand the immediate need for us to start orthodox schools everywhere. And I think what's very encouraging is that without a lot of cooperation, we see that happening all over the world. I'm very encouraged today. I went to the school today, had the blessing, uh, and saw what is in the works. And I hope it happens very quickly. And I hope everyone understands the urgency for this school to open. It is a matter of salvation for our children. It is a matter of uh, the continuation of the gospel uh, in the future generations, but immediately we need this. We needed it yesterday in terms of protecting our children from delusion and from immorality and all the rest. Uh, so the need is, 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 is immense. Uh, in, or, in Orthodox countries, the need is immense. In Greece, for 18 years, everyone has been saying we need to open up schools run by the church and not rely on state schools which are becoming undermined and perverted by European uh, liberalism and Marxism. <clears throat> and we uh, have responded, God has blessed this opening of this school in Arizona that I've been appointed as headmaster. I want to talk a little bit about how that started, share a little personal experience to encourage you all to continue and to, and to work hard on opening uh, your school. Uh, last March, a year ago, uh, it was decided by faithful near the monastery, people who have moved from all over the United States to be close to the monastery in St. Anthony, after years of discussion, that we need to finally just leap out in faith without having all, all, everything organized, without having a lot of money, without having a lot of ideas of who's going to teach, and literally just leaping out in faith and saying, let's do this. And they began in March, they began making phone calls, they began talking to potential teachers, they had some people who were going to offer uh, uh, basically a home, which we tr trans transformed into a school, uh, and very quickly developed whatever we could in terms of a, a curriculum. And the books we chose, and things were, things were thrown, th thrown together in almost overnight. Within four or five months, uh, the school opened in September. And we were expecting, they were expecting, because I was at that time still in Greece, I came actually after the opening of the school. That was the earliest I could come. Uh, I had gone back to Greece for three or four months. And uh, they opened the school with what they, initially they thought they would have 25 students, they opened with 52. Uh, and we had a good crisis on our hands. We couldn't, we didn't have places to put the kids. We had, uh, we had eight or nine kids in, in a room the size of, a, of an office, an office for, for, with a desk and, and, and chairs. Uh, and this, this, this house was transformed into our school, uh, and we've been operating uh, in crisis mode all year, trying to catch up both in terms of the infrastructure, the economics, the curriculum, and all the rest. And so there comes a time, and I would say this to the, to the folks who are planning the school, you just got to do it. You just got to say, we're not ready. We're never going to be ready. If you think there's going to be the day where it's all going to be organized and everything's going to be perfect, you're, you're going to be waiting for decades. You just got to start. And when you start and you leap out in faith, the Lord blesses. And so we've been making it every month economically. We've had donors come out. We've had people write. We've had people write us and say we want to move there for the sake of the school. 
people from all over the United States and even from Greece, people who, who have supported us with checks and with donations from different parts of the, of the United States. Uh, and we're moving forward step by step uh, to create our own curriculum. Uh, and we have people writing us saying they, they're going to, next year they're going to enroll. And so thanks be to God, we have a new second building that we've, we've opened uh, for the high school kids. We have 39 in, in K through 6 and 13 in the high school. And we've opened now, we've, we've um, carved out in one of the two houses that we have now, we've carved out a chapel. So we are now serving divine liturgy uh, when I'm there uh, every, every week. And, uh, and this is, of course, at the center of the school. The center of the school has to be the divine liturgy, the um, attending of the divine services and the prayer of, of, the, of the children. So there's no... Um, there's no blueprint for this. I, I've been amazed as I, as I get to know educators from around the world and around the country how they've, they've been schools like St. John of Shanghai in San Francisco or, or Padilla uh, Elementary down in Florida or other places around the country. They're, they're opening up the last five or ten years and no one has an orthodox curriculum. They're, they're literally improvising year to year so we're, 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 in a, uh, we're pathfinders to this orthodox education in the English language for a variety of reasons. Because orthodoxy is new in the English-speaking world, because orthodox schools, for the most part, in traditional orthodox countries either were not operating for most of the 20th century and under the communist regimes, or they've been following Western models in those countries which were influenced by uh, the Western uh, mentality and, and the non-Orthodox mentality. So there's aspects of Orthodox theology, uh, uh, curriculum everywhere, but there's not a unified, thought-out Orthodox curriculum. And so we're, we're having to embark on that, and we're working with people in different parts of the country. And I, I think we're going to be working together, I hope, with you and, and your educators as well. We need, we need one another. We need to work together if we're going to make this happen. Uh, but it, I'm very uh, encouraged by the amount of zeal and desire on people everywhere to see the schools operate, open, and, and, and teach our children. So uh, it's only going to get better if we just are patient and, and we do the work uh, and we make progress. So that's a, a few, few words of introduction. I'm happy to answer more practical or personal questions in, uh, after the, the talk. I want to present you the next two, two sections, a little bit about the theory and then about the practice of what I think goes into uh, an Orthodox school. And of course, as I said, this is a work in progress. So you might talk to me in a year's time and I might have amended this. Uh, but from what I can tell, from meeting and talking to other educators, this is what we have at the time for the time being. As I said, there's two schools of thought in terms of education. There's the public Western model that has essentially been developed since the Enlightenment, especially over the last 150 years, which is definitely not an expression of the Christian vision, and that is something that we don't want to follow and we reject. And there's the classical education, which uh, was uh, formed uh, structurally from the time of the ancient Greeks and was consistent throughout all of the Roman, Eastern Roman Empire, and it was picked up in the West as well. So structurally, 
we have some similarities with classical education in the West, but in many other ways, the classical education movement, which is very much alive today in America, it's been a, a renaissance in the last 25 years. There's hundreds and hundreds of schools that have opened up by Roman Catholics and Protestants in rejection of the public uh, vision, the, 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 the state schools, uh, and they're, they're, they're projecting a classical education. I'm going to talk a little about what that is and what we don't like about it. Because again, the Orthodox vision is unique. It's not just a, um, as they would say, some people would say orthodoxy is like Catholicism without the Pope. Well, this is not uh, classical education without, you know, a few, a few things taken away. It's a different vision. But the closest thing to that vision right now in Western society is classical education, as, as it's been understood uh, by, by many educators today. So... We have to begin there, and again, structurally, it is also akin to what we've done in the past. So if you went back to the 14th or the 13th century, uh, you wanted to see how St. Gregory Palamas was educated, for instance, or even back to the early fathers, you would see that the basic structure <coughs> is the same. Uh, that structure is going to be, first of all, we need to say that it was all very, very intimate and like a family. It was never this mass education that we see today. It was, if you were, wanted to be highly educated in the 5th, 6th, 8th, 10th, 12th century in the Roman Empire, you would have a tutor. You would probably not begin education outside of the, your mother and father until you were 7, 8, or 9, or even 10 years old. The tutor would have come and been paid probably to your house, or you would have gathered together with a few other people, a handful of people around that tutor, uh, maybe a little bit more if there was some particular state education for the purpose of serving the state. So we do see that in uh, the Roman Empire. We, we see that there was a desire on the part of the state to have people who were well-educated in law and in Latin and in Greek to be able to serve the purposes of the state. But there was a very small amount of people. The, most people who were educated for the thousand years of the, of the, of the uh, Romeocini, the Roman Empire, the Orthodox Empire were educated by the church, and they weren't highly educated. They were educated in the basics. Uh, they passed through, if, they were, if the stages they would have passed through, along, following along the lines of the ancient Greek education, would have been three stages, grammar, uh, logic or dialectic, and rhetoric. Those are the classic stages, as you see in both East and West, and even in the Ren after the Renaissance in the West. Let me say... Uh, right off the bat, so what happened? Why, why do we have a divergence in terms of the vision of education in the East and the West between the Orthodox and the West? Well, the Renaissance happened. And one of the reasons why we have a classical education renaissance uh, in, the, in the 14th, 15th century is precisely to get away from classical Christian approaches. So its, its origins are not necessarily uh, uh, Christian uh, but they were, they, were, they were still seeking to educate them in the basics of the grammar, dialectic or logic, and rhetoric. They were learning Latin and they were learning Greek, and this is what it meant to be an educated person in the West. But there were small groups. There were always small groups. And it was personal and it was a tutor, and you were learning um, from that tutor everything. Uh, so... That's one of the first things we're trying to replicate, is that we want to keep things small. We want to keep it a family atmosphere. We want to have their children 
hug their teachers, take the, take the blessing of their priests, uh, and endure, form enduring, lifelong friendships. We want intimate relationships with their teachers. And this is how, as I said, education was characterized for most of history. Small groups of determined students gathered around their tutor, learning from him not only a narrow corridor of knowledge, but lessons of, for all of life. The second thing that is key in a traditional classical Orthodox education is uh, the partnership with the parents. And we also put that forward uh, f first and foremost. We understand that the chief, uh, the person who's chiefly responsible for teaching the children, the chief pedagogue is the parent. And we serve the parent, not the other way around. You see, com in compulsory education, in state schools, in socialist settings, we have the idea that the state is responsible for the education. And so even in Greece today, it is illegal, formally, to do homeschooling because they consider that as uh, their responsibility, the state's responsibility. So that is something that's very different in America. America, surprisingly so, in some ways, all 50 states have, have confirmed that the parents are in charge of the education of the children and not the state. And that's why homeschooling in America is flourishing. We have 2.4 million children in America who are homeschooled. And there's a tremendous uh, uh, treasure of resources available uh, online and in local communities. They're getting together many times, Orthodox and Christian and Protestant and Roman Catholic are getting together in co-ops. They're working together to educate their children. And today we see a flourishing of online classical education sources. So you can go sign your children up, pay a fee, and you have twice a week, a, through the internet, a personal live teaching with a, a, a teacher. Could be 20, 10, 15, 30 kids in that classroom. You see, the cl you see online uh, the kids who are there, their names are there. Uh, you can raise your hand and you can ask a question. You can see the teacher teach. You can see the blackboard. It's as close as you can imagine to a real classroom. They're meeting twice a week and they're doing things like logic, Latin, Greek, rhetoric, and all the other courses that one would need today in public education. And so that is happening in the tens of thousands uh, uh, in terms of courses being offered right now on the internet. So homeschooling is flourishing uh, among uh, Orthodox, Protestants, and Roman Catholics in the United States. So that is a key, if we're going to understand education properly, that the parent is going to give account at the second coming for the education of their child. It's very clear in Proverbs that you will give an account. You cannot say, well, the state took my child, I'm not responsible. That's not going to be an excuse at the second coming. You are responsible for raising your child in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And a big part of that is going to happen from the time they begin schooling until they go on to university, if they go on to the university. So we partner with the parents, and it's very important for us that we're there with them and we're close to them and they understand and they're a part of the education. Of course, that presupposes that they believe in the school and they want what we're offering. And that sometimes is a, a, a task in itself. I find myself educating or needing to educate sometimes the parents more than the children. 
in terms of what an Orthodox school is all about. So this classical, Christian, traditional, whatever you want to call it, Orthodox education, which really is with us from at least the fourth century on, uh, follows again this so-called trivium, this grammar, logic, rhetoric stages. The grammar stage, we'll talk about the stages in a second, but the, the grammar stages from ages from five to, or let's say first to fourth grade, uh, roughly, the dialectic or logical logic stages from fifth to eighth grade, and then ninth to twelfth would be the rhetoric stage. And we'll talk about a little bit what that means. Um, we have that in common with everybody who's doing a classical education today. But so we we would we would, for instance, teach something like Homer, even though the content is problematic, perhaps, in some ways. The, 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 the language has always been uh, a part of the education of all of those who were educated in the Roman Empire, including St. Gregory Palamas, because of the language. And so uh, there are certain texts which we're going to employ in an Orthodox Christian setting with the necessary presuppositions and discernment. But in many ways, Western classical education diverged from Orthodoxy and does not express the Orthodox uh, phronima, and it's both in terms of the end, they don't have the common end of our education, which is going to be in the context of purification, illumination, and theosis, that whole, uh, uh, the life of, of Christ, and the means, how we get there, and the sources. What are our sources? We're going to have a divergence in all three ways to a lesser or greater degree. But we're both, in both ways, we're looking for the true, the good, and the beautiful. This is the phrase used very often in classical education. The question is unpacking the true, the good, and the beautiful, what it means and how we commune with it. There we have a divergence with the West. In the West, there is the so-called great books. The great books were more or less invented and created in the early 20th century, and it is a list of what you must read if you want to be an educated person. That's how they, they describe it. In other words, the great books are those in, in, in immensely important texts written by philosophers, literature uh, uh, um, authors, uh, theologians, uh, historians, and all the rest. And that forms the core uh, and, and the sources uh, for education. The problem is in the West that, that, is that those great books from the schism on uh, are going to be books that we're, gonna, we're not going to want to have as listed as great books for us. Uh, we, we're not interested uh, in filling our kids with thought which is contrary to Christ, even if it is considered a great book. Uh, there'd, be, there'd be a lot more reticence on the orthodox part of including, without discernment, all of these texts, whereas in the West... There's not that kind of discernment present many times, and so those books are included, and those, dis those ideas are discussed. Sure, we're going to encounter those. Sure, we're going to debate those, but it's going to be uh, more limited. And we have, in any case, our own great books, which are ignored in the West. Uh, our writers, uh, which have been uh, never understood or forgotten. So there's, a, there's a, a gap in the West between Augustine and Aquinas, for instance. We have St. Maximus the Confessor, St. Simeon the Theologian, St. Photius the Great, which is not present in the great books in the West. Or even after the schism, 
totally ignored in the West. You have Saints Gregory Palamas, Saint Nicodemus the Hagarite, Saint Seraphim the Seraph, and all kinds of other writers. Uh, in Greek, you could include somebody like Papa Diamantis, or in Russia, uh, Dostoevsky, although many times Dostoevsky, you can find him in the West as well. So the sources differ. And then also our goal, our ultimate goal, and the means of attaining that differ. So we're not interested in, the, in what's called the great conversation, you know, this, this great conversation that's been happening in, in Western society between philosophers, theologians, and, and scientists. <laughs> Per se, that's not, our, that's not our main interest, whereas that oftentimes is in the West. Where they want to they become a part of this great conversation of intellectuals. That's not, that's not really our, our goal. Uh, we want to have a great conversation, a truly great conversation, but not because we engage every prominent thinker, but rather because we are engaged by exceptionally inspired discourse of heavenly origins. The boast of orthodox civilization is not the quantity of the works produced, you often hear that in, 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 in classical circles in the West, nor the rate by which the ideas are exchanged, but rather the quality of the communion generated and the depth of the meaning attained. That's what we're interested in. It's better to have less, but go deeper, than to have more and have confusion and have diversion from the one thing needful. So our ultimate in orthodox, in, in educational enlight, enlightenment is not merely to produce good wise men and much less good citizens. If this were the case, we would be impoverished as orthodox. And the incarnation would be rather unnecessary if that was the goal of our education. Just as the law was our pedagogue until faith came, so too the end of education must be initiation into the spirit, and the beginning of an endless ascent to divine humanity in the church. Our great, book is, our great books could also be explained in the following way. We're not interested in the kind of knowledge that comes from academic research alone, but we want to be initiated into the truth in an experiential way. We want to bring forth uh, people to the knowledge of the truth in a personal and communal way. You can talk about and describe truth in many ways, beauty and goodness, through the study of the great books, but unless one is personally communing with the truth, then the, this, this beauty, this truth, this goodness that they're discovering in their reading remains in the rational uh, realm and it's elusive as an experience. So. The heart of the Orthodox school cannot be the study of great books, but the encounter with truth incarnate in the spiritual life, in the people who are teaching the children. The most important uh, element is who's teaching and not what they're teaching. And of course, in the divine liturgy and the whole spiritual life of the community. So it's not this, this truth and beauty and goodness, which is the aim of classical education, is not attained primarily through the rational intellect, but through the noose, through the spirit of man. And it is clear that the means and the ends toward this are spiritual. So our, our educational paradigm is shaped and determined by our orthodox soteriology, what salvation is about. 
by our, our nociology or our understanding of knowledge. Our orthodox understanding of the acquisition of knowledge is not just gnosis, which is, a kind of, which is kind of an intellectual knowledge about something, can be, but as St. Paul says in the scriptures, epignosis, which is experiential knowledge. That's the basis of our, that's our paradigm in terms of knowledge. And if we understand that, then we, we, we better understand the role of academic education or the, the so-called liberal arts in the orthodox context. You see, it takes on a different role. It's more limited and more particular, and it works together with the development of the spirit and not apart from it. In most places, even in the best classical education, what we're talking about is an academic acquisition of knowledge and not a spiritual encounter with truth. So we'll talk quickly about the trivium, the so-called trivium, which is the, the Latin term for this threefold educational process that, that people would go through educationally, academically, uh, in classical education. We said the first is grammar, and that comes from the Greek word grammatikos, and it, it means basically the art of using and combining symbols to express thought. This is, the, this is the, the building blocks of knowledge. This is why the grammar stage is the first four years when kids are disposed to learning about and acquiring uh, and with numbers and with histories and with dates. This is the time period that we need to give them the raw material of education. We're not going to engage them in terms of the rational uh, argumentation, the logic stage. We're not going to express, expect from them rhetoric, expressing of ideas. That's not what's going to happen in the first four years. We're going to give them the basics, the building blocks. They're going to be filled with that, and then when they reach a maturity, the next stage, they're going to pass from that into the art of thinking, and that's the dialectic stage. That's the logic stage. So here they learn the mechanics of thought and analysis, the art of formal and material reasoning. That's the dialectic stage. We're talking about sixth through eighth or ninth grades. And then the rhetoric stage is the final stage in the, in the, in the trivium. So that's where we're getting to the high school. And now they've, they've got the building blocks. They've, they've, they've honed their rational understanding, their, their logic, their dialectic, and it's time to express and to apply the knowledge they've acquired in order to instruct and to persuade. And this is very important in classical education. St. Gregory Palamas, uh, if you remember from his life, uh, he, he, when he was 18, and uh, just before he left for the monastery, he presented in front of uh, dignitaries and the, and the court, and his teacher, uh, said famously, I did not know if I was in front of uh, uh, Socrates or in front of my student, something like this. So, the, so, so he, the rhetoric was the sign that somebody was educated. He could express himself, persuade others, and uh, the knowledge, the understanding, was then transmitted as wisdom. And this meant the person had arrived at wisdom. We could put it more simply, grammar pertains to the thing as it is, symbolized. Dialectic as the thing, uh, pertains to the thing as it is known. And rhetoric to the thing as it is communicated. So it's symbols, knowledge, and communication. This is the, this is the process by which one becomes an educated human being.
If we were to stop there, we would pretty much have described classical education as it's lived out and understood among the non-Orthodox. But we have to add which is much more, and we have to actually give the heart now. We've, we've talked about the head and, the, and the, the rational intellect and its development, which is essential. But where's the heart? Where's the spirit? And here we have the threefold, let's say, trivium or threefold program of purification, illumination, and deification. If we didn't have that, the trivium is vanity. It's not salvific. It could actually puff one up and lead him into delusion. And this is the danger with academic, intellectual, rational knowledge is that it, if it's not combined with spiritual ascent, with purification from the passions, with humility and all the virtues, it is working against our salvation. And so it's key that at the core of our Orthodox school, we have the spiritual trivium or spiritual threefold uh, process of, of formation. So toward achieving the overall formation of the child, and precisely because there should be no compartmentalization and thus secularization of the children's lives, the academy has to have as a central role uh, the overall furtherance of the children's spiritual ascent. And so if you're, forming, you're building a school, and the parents want to send their kids to this school, everyone has to be on the same page here. If they are expecting their kids to go just to a better school, a school that does things in a nice orthodox context, but they're not expecting spiritual formation, then what are we doing? We haven't done an orthodox school. We're not on the path of orthodox education. The core has to be the therapy, the restoration of the, spiritual, of the spirit of man, the noose of man. If the academic trivium is meant to bring the rational intellect to a knowledge of creation, the spiritual trivium is essential for the spirit of man, the noose, to come to an ex experiential knowledge of God. Whereas the formal schooling process of learning is necessarily limited, the process of returning to God and increasing the depth of communion with Him has a beginning, but it has no end. And therefore, the school is just the beginning of this process. So when the ultimate aim, the ultimate goal of salvation in Christ is purposefully sought in the spiritual process of purification, illumination, and glorification, then the academic trivium comes as a firm support and itself finds its fulfillment. So these two have to go together. It's like body and soul. Otherwise, you do not have an orthodox school. What's the aim of a traditional Orthodox education, simply put? Within the Orthodox fullness and the freedom of Christ, a critical and creative thinker is in a position to decipher the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. So we're teaching people not just what they need to know. We're not just preparing them to be a part of a system to get a job. We're teaching them how to learn and continually learn throughout their whole life. Learning how to learn. That's what's going on in Orthodox context. We're freeing them so that they can be themselves free of the shackles of this age. To throw off the shackles, to make the faith and truth of the church his own, to live for Christ with his whole mind, heart, and soul. That's the goal of an Orthodox education. It's exactly the opposite is, is what my experience, my understanding of 
state compulsory education. It's not to free them, but to enslave them and to make them a part of the system, which is the system ultimately which will serve the Antichrist at the end of the day. So we have to be very clear the goal of our school, and that is freedom from the shackles of the age, not simply preparation to serve the society which is, the, which is being formed. One of the methods, the key methods in this whole process is, and I think it's, a, it's an important method which has to be, let's say, baptized uh, by the Orthodox, but it is an important method for creating, create, creating creative thinkers, and that is the Socratic method. The Socratic method, which, if it's done correctly, far from encouraging, uh, let's say, f uh, thinkers that are not, ha do not have a goal, because many people think of the Socratic method as just getting together and everybody telling their opinion. Far from it. Obviously, so Socrates was not about just the opinions of others, but about the truth. So the Socratic method is a, is a way of taking that inner discussion that's going on in the, in, the, in, the, in the student and directing it toward the truth. It's a methodology which is, which is very important. Enough on the theory of the curriculum and education. Let's talk about some practical aspects, and then we can open it up for questions and answers. I'm going to give you what I think, and I'm going to take largely from a... a an important Orthodox academic uh, educator today. Uh, his name is David Hicks. He's written a book called Norms and Nobility. I highly recommend it. Anybody who's going to be your academic dean or chair needs to read it at their school. Norms and Nobility. He was an educator in the classical, edu uh, classical Western context for decades. He was in Athens, and then now he's back in America. He became an Orthodox Christian, I'm not sure when, maybe about a decade ago, and he's been writing and talking to Orthodox people about an Orthodox education. And so largely, I'm going to take from him because I, I like it and I think it's expressive of the Orthodox phronema on this question. And he gives seven traits of an Orthodox education, seven traits of an Orthodox school. And here's the first, and I'm going to comment as we go, uh, adding a few of my own thoughts. The first and most important thing, of course, are the relationships that's built in the school. And that means the teacher. The teacher is the most important. If you have a school that has teachers who are not living the spiritual life, do not have an orthodox phronema, do not understand what the end of orthodox education is about, you, have, you do not have an orthodox school. You are as, the school is as good as its teachers. The school is as good as its teachers. So, the first and foremost, we have to have a faithful and spiritually mature Orthodox um, group of teachers. And they need to demonstrate their love in actions for the children. That's number one. Number two is that we need to develop Orthodox Christian community. It's one of the biggest missing uh, pieces of the puzzle in our Orthodox life today. Because we live in a society which is individualistic, which is compartmentalized, which is disintegrating community. Uh, the whole structure of Western, especially America and Australia and other places, is, is, is a community that not, does not have roots, does not have an identity, and we are all individuals and their community is being lost. So we have to create, the Orthodox School is a tremendous opportunity for the church to, to increase the community to bind together the children from a young age 
uh, in their orthodox identity. Uh, and they must not, they must cease to exist as individuals, and their relationships with God and one another has to come alive. And that's really important. It, means, it needs to be a conscious goal of the school to create community. That's, that's exactly what I'm seeing happen in Arizona, that immediately the school has gathered together the community. So the community was there. There were a lot of people living around the monastery. But the monastery is not a parish. So one of the things that we've seen immediately is that this missing link for those, all of those faithful who've come to be close to the monastery is that they have immediately an Orthodox community. And people are getting together, parents are getting together, and it's an opportunity to, for the parents to be catechized. It's an opportunity for the children to, to, to have guidance outside of their home by an Orthodox uh, educator and for that community to become a reality. So number two would have to be uh, Orthodox community. Number three... Number three, well, before I say that, there's a wonderful, a wonderful uh, historical example that Dr. Hicks mentions, and let me, let me just share that with you. And I didn't know about this until I, I read his writings. In the fourth century, there was a school in Nisibis, Nisibis, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. It was reestablished by St. Ephraim the Syrian in Edessa after this city fell to the Persians. And the supreme authority in the school was exercised in community meetings where the students, because of their numbers, had the deciding vote and elected the educators, or the head of the educators. They handled, the people who handled, in other words, all the finances of the, and operations of the school, as well as the discipline. So the head of the school was the rector, the spiritual guide, and the director of studies. No one could be expelled from the school without a vote of the community. And if you just consider that a minute, this means they had a high degree of trust between teachers and students. And this was uh, something that I think is definitely something we should imitate. The students need to be a part and feel that they own the school. They need to be a part of the school. It should not be something that they just come to and leave and then they need to help clean up. They need to help raise money for the school. They need to be a part of the whole process and that's a, that's a great example from church history, which I did not know about. Number three, it is key that we have a, the right criteria for choosing the content or the sources that the children are going to be reading. And one of the keys here is that they have a vertical. Whatever they're going to read, it doesn't have to be orthodox material. It can't be, because there's not enough orthodox material in English language for us to provide so we're going to be using non-Orthodox sources whether we like it or not, and the question has to be, our criteria has to be how, and on what basis do we choose what we're going to use. Well, there has to be a vertical dimension. There has to be God a part of the story, or we should not include it at all. And, and much of the material that's being used in contemporary education is godless. It's only horizontal. It's not vertical. So that has to be the basic prerequisite. Whatever we bring in has to be. And so there are sources out there. Uh, that we can, we can use. And we're going back in our school, we're actually doing historical research right now. I have teachers that I've given this task. They're going back to the 19th century texts. They're going back to 1840s for math texts. They're going back to McGuffey Readers, which was a 19th century uh, series of educational and English texts. And we're seeing what they were doing because we believe that after this renovation in education, especially at the end of the 19th century, we had a perversion, a distortion, and an undermining of education. So phonics, for instance, went out the window. 
and people became more and more literate, illiterate. They knew how to read, but they didn't read, and they don't read today. Uh, and and they, there are many illiterate people uh, in the 20th century, which is very strange and odd that you have people who cannot read. And phonics is, was, a tr was, was the system in place, the way of learning how to read for, for young children, and we're, doing the, we're using phonics. That's just one example. You can go back and you can see how they did mathematics. And so we're getting back to the tried and traditional and uh, old ways of educating, and we're going to start incorporating that next year. Um, it's, in addition to this, uh, a text should not, of course, celebrate sin in any way. And it should put forth the virtues. That would be other criteria for what kind of text we should incorporate in educational process. Uh, and I would say, and I would agree with Dr. Hicks, who says the same thing, but I, I, we've said this many times in our school as well, throw out textbooks. Maybe not for mathematics or science, but definitely for English, definitely for history. Throw out textbooks, get to the sources. Have the children come into contact directly with sources, with the literature of the day, with the histo histor historical sources used to write the history books. If you, are, uh, if you are teaching the children with textbooks, you have an intermediary between the child and the, the history or the or the source uh, that you're, you're introducing. You have, in other words, a gatekeeper who's going to keep them from a direct encounter. And, and that's a totally different education. So for instance, if you're reading about the Middle Ages, read about the Middle Ages. Read sources from the Middle Ages. We have that in our uh, disposal. We don't have to have a 20th century academic who's writing about the Middle Ages teach us about the Middle Ages. We should go right to the sources. And at the very least, if there is a need for a textbook, there's plenty of good traditional Christian heterodox, uh, in this context, uh, sources that we can choose that are better than what they're using in the public schools. So we have to bravely trodden the, the path uh, that is, is, is not taken by the majority. Number four. We need to be sure and, be, and know that there is no academic disadvantage to our students in failing to study the cultural sources that are, are filling our, our society today. We don't need to follow the Joneses and read what they're reading. And there's not going to be any academic problem if we do that. We can find our own sources, our own way of imparting culture and knowledge. Uh, it's not only because the works we study in Orthodox schools are more demanding, more full of meaning, richer and closer to the source, but because the most researched and data-supported educational theory declares it so. In other words, what you teach is not nearly as important as how you teach it. This is uh, Dr. Hicks's conclusion, and I, I wholeheartedly agree. We focus a lot on the what. Uh, and we don't understand it's about how you teach and who is teaching. It's far more important than the what, what you're teaching. Uh, and the whole classical education <coughs> approach, the whole traditional Christian approach is, is, could, could be summed up, is we're interested in teaching them how to fish and not just giving them a fish to eat. 
And that's, that's a very different approach to what's going on in most education today. Dr. Hicks says the following, which I like the quote, it's very, it's very good, uh, in terms of rational thinking, critical thinking, problem solving, which, are, which of course is an aim of the school. Uh, he says, we ought to have clear instructional protocols that ask all teachers to use an interrogatory method based on high order reasoning. He says, and explains himself, a teacher needs to identify the essential questions for every lesson. So you go into a lesson and you know what to ask. That's a part of the Socratic method. If you're going to get them to think deeply and to have critical thought and not just be passive receptors regurgitating what the teacher said, we don't want that. You know, most of education today is educating for the test. Most of the education is preparing somebody to take a test. This is a terrible way of educating. It is, undermines true uh, love of knowledge and it creates people who are indifferent to truth. So we want them to have critical thinking. And questions are the key. The educator has to right, ask the right questions. And many times, we don't want to just give them food. Here it is. Here's the truth. No. They need to be troubled. They need to be challenged. They need to be provoked to think about and understand and come to the, the knowledge of the truth on their own, uh, expending a lot of energy to do that. Um, a teacher needs to do this. It needs to use differentiated strategies in instruction. It's a variety of strategies, not just one-dimensional, not just lectures, not just discussion, but a variety of things to keep education lively. Never complete a lesson without a high-order assessment. In other words, at the end, you have to bring it back and summarize and present the, the conclusion so we have closure and we have a clear understanding. Without this, the teacher will not build the critical thinking, complex problem-solving, high-order reasoning skills that the people need today if they're going to be free of the zeitgeist, if they're going to be also very uh, successful in terms of their, their future. And they won't be faithful to the best traditions of Orthodox Christians. He says, remember, we are nurturing humans, not automans, automatons, I should say, creatures whom their creator made in his own image with reasoning minds and free wills. The conclusions that our students come to after having weighed all the evidence and heard all the arguments are those that will guide them against the intellectual fads and fancies of the world at the same time as providing them with the critical tools to tackle any new topic or question with confidence and discernment. And yet, on the same, at the same time, and this is number five, we have five, six, and seven, and then I'm going to open up for questions. At the same time, Dr. Hicks says... We have a theology of history. We have a narrative that culminates in the Incarnation, starts with the Incarnation and culminates in the Incarnation, Passion, Resurrection, Second Coming, all of these events in time that made everything new. So we're not just wandering through history. We have the Alpha and the Omega. We understand where we're coming from, where we're going. And I would say at, at, this, at the center then of everything has to be that we organize the school along the church calendar, its feasts and its fasts, its saints' days, its readings from the gospel, the epistles, the lives of the saints. This is a part of our school curriculum, our school life. It ought to, to, to some extent, reflect the prayers of the church. The books we study should either uh, draw on the themes of our narrative and God's redemptive work in history. They should call attention to the shallowness 
and the emptiness and the depravity of the world absent God, the godless world that we live in, and the hope and the redemption in Christ. It, has, it needs to have both. You can't just talk about Christ and have a positive assessment. You do need a critique. You do, you do need critical thinking. You do need, at times, even, I would say, this is my own addition, mockery of the absurdity of much of what is passing as civilized society today. They need to, the children need to have that protection. They need to have that critical thinking. I've introduced at the high school, uh, for the high school kids, last semester I taught this, the Orthodox Survival Course by Father Seraphim Rose, which I highly recommend you all read, as it is an assessment of the last, the whole process of the apostasy. How, how we've arrived, as, why we've arrived, and how we've arrived at what we've, we have in the Western world. It goes back all the way to the schism. And he explains step by step the process of dissolution of the Christian vision in the West. And it is all connected. It's not at all isolated. What we're living in the 21st century is connected all the way back to the 11th century. Father Zephyr Rose lays it out, and it's online. It's free for download. Orthodox Survival Course. These were lectures he gave to uh, young men in the 1970s. And it was a fruit of all his research that he had done. Uh, before and after becoming an Orthodox Christian. That's the kind of thing that we should bring to the Orthodox school. That kind of critical thinking, that kind of Orthodox phronema and worldview which assesses everything and gives us the Alpha and the Omega. If we don't have that, then we are lost in history. We will not understand what's happening to us. We will not understand the society we live in. And if our children go out there without that understanding, they're going to be uh, victims of this of this zeitgeist, of this spirit of the age that we're living through. We should be very clear, Dr. Hicks says, that the state's narrative, the state school's narrative, is much more shocking, much more anti-historical than ours. Because many times people say, well, if, if, if that's what you're doing in, in there, this is not education, this is indoctrination. This is one of the things you might hear from somebody who talks about an orthodox school. You're, being, you're indoctrinating people. You're not allowing them to free. And in fact, it's just the opposite. They're getting indoctrination in the state schools. It's not, we're not more doctrinaire than the state schools wherein religion is prescribed topic. You don't talk about God in the state schools. He's never mentioned. And of course, God as the God of history is not a part of the educational process. So we are far freer, and we actually free people from the chains and so we should not have any kind of complex that we need to, when people accuse us of teaching doctrine and teaching a vision of the world, and as if they're not doing the same thing in the state schools. They're doing it, and they're doing it, and they're bringing people into nihilism, hopelessness, because there's no God, and there's no end of, uh, and point to the life uh, without God. Um, the sixth point here, and then we'll... we'll quickly end with the seventh. He says here, the ancient Greeks who invented the school, as you probably all know, the ancient Greeks invented the school system, school uh, education, as you say, did not distinguish in their language between education and culture. When seeing the word pedia in Greek, modern English translators have to decide from the context whether it's right education or culture. It's interchangeable in Greek. That's very instructive for us. It's an important lesson. Culture is the most profound education 
of all. So our schools have to be about producing orthodox culture, the orthodox ethos, the orthodox way of life. If all we do is give them education, and even orthodox education, we failed. They have to go, when they go to school, they, wanna, they have to go and feel they're entering into a whole culture, a whole way of living and understanding, and, and, and it has to pervade everything. And it is perpetually indoctrinating and educating us whether we are aware of it or not. Think of the profound effects of television and video games and social media have on our children. This is the kind of culture that we're living in. All of that is educating our children. The television and all, everything that's going on in mo modern media is educating and it's culture. And so the same thing has to, has to happen in the orthodox context if we're going to have any success. If we fail in that, then we have, we're going to fail the children because it's not going to be enough to resist the, 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 the temptations of the world. The temple, of course, is the center of that, right? The, the worship is, of course, the center of this culture. It has to be the, the, the divine liturgy and the worship has to be the center. So the, there are unique traditions in the Orthodox Church which shape our tastes, our habits, and our attitudes. And that should be a part of the Orthodox school's uh, mission. Finally, uh, Dr. Hicks uh, suggests, and I think this is something that would be a very practical as well as important pedagogical end. When education ends, when they're ending their time in the Orthodox school before they go on to uh, other things, it should all be summarized. It should be a culminating course of reflection back upon all that they have learned. And ideally, the Orthodox priest or bishop or monk should be at the center of that culminating process. He should be there to guide them and make sense of and, and, and unify everything they've learned. And including in that should be contact with the monastery, uh, an essay uh, explaining everything they've learned. They need, to, they need to summarize and look at it all as a united whole and not as a bunch of knowledge and not as a bunch of experiences. But they need to, they need to make sense of that at the end. And that, that will be something that will uh, be with them the rest of their lives. So uh, that is largely taken from Dr. Hicks, which I agree with, I appreciate, uh, and it is uh, very helpful for us uh, in understanding practically what this school should be about. So I hope, hopefully I've given you a sense of the struggle of what it means to open, open up a school, how important it is for our church today everywhere to open up schools, what an uh, academic curriculum would be like, how it's, what principles it would, uh, it would be based on, and then some practical, important aspects of what an Orthodox school uh, contains. And uh, this could be food for thought and hopefully lots of good questions. Thank you very much for your attention. Oh,